When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Aspen Brown, the host of the channel, and I'm currently an MA candidate at the University of Wyoming studying cultural history, focusing on environment, science, and knowledge. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Erin Drew about her new book and winner of the Walker Cohen Memorial Prize for Outstanding Work of Scholarship in 18th Century Studies, titled The Eufostructury Ethos, Power, Politics, and Environment in the Long 18th Century, published by the University of Virginia Press in 2021. Dr. Erin Drew, welcome to the show. Hi, Aspen. Thank you for having me. Well, it is our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for coming. And before we dive into this wonderful, insightful book, um, I was just wondering if you'd like to begin telling us a bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Um, I am, as you mentioned, uh, or maybe you didn't mention, uh, I'm a professor of uh, English uh, literature at the University of Mississippi um, in Oxford, Mississippi. Um, And uh, I did my PhD in English at the University of Notre Dame. Um, And uh, so my interest in um, environmental studies you know, it, it kind of is one of those stories that is has been um, a part of my life, kind of in and out, um, going all the way back. You know, I was definitely um, a child of the outdoors growing up, and um, a lot of had a lot of very important, informative memories, sort of tied up with natural spaces in my hometown in Madison, Wisconsin, and. Um, uh, you know, so some of that sort of faded for a while until I got into grad school. And it was actually um, a course that I took with uh, Dr. John Sitter, who is um, now an emeritus professor of English uh, uh, at Notre Dame. Um, he's an 18th centuryist, and he was sort of, he taught a course on eco-criticism, um, which is sort of a field that I wasn't aware of. You know, it was, it was this was probably 2008 or nine. Um and so your criticism was still relatively youthful. 
uh, as a field. Um, but he sort of reintroduced the idea that I could be thinking about um, nature and human relationships to the environment um, through literature again, and particularly through the literature of the 18th century. Um, and, um, you know, from there, the other piece of my sort of scholarly story and the story of this book, um, of course, had to do with the, the, at the time, the sort of difficult position that um, 18th century literature and, you know, thought and texts having to do with what we call the Enlightenment um, had kind of a, a complicated and difficult relationship with environmental studies, with eco-criticism at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, there was very, very little, uh, almost no uh, eco-critical studies of the 18th century um, literature at that point. And, um, you know, eco-criticism tended to be more heavily aligned with British romanticism, at least in, in sort of in British studies. And so, um, you know, I got really interested in kind of interrogating why that was and thinking about the kinds of environmental assumptions that went were behind um, that sort of critical legacy and also trying to think about um, what sorts of insights uh, the 18th century as a period had that were maybe being, hadn't been noticed, you know, or had, were being sort of overlooked. And one of the kind of like, uh, I think, sort of bugbears of the time, I think, in eco-criticism, and again, this is a kind of like, this is a, an older version of eco-criticism. And, you know, if you're, if you're sort of newer to the field, it maybe is won't be quite so familiar, but, um, you know, coming out of the sort of 90s and interest in, in deep ecology, there was a real suspicion um, in eco studies of any kind of, of use, you know, so anytime you saw um, sort of environment or nature or, or animals or plants or whatever being sort of used by human beings, it was generally taken to, or, or very often taken to be sort of negative. Um, and so one of the things that had been kind of preventing the 18th century from having a place in the field for a long time was that, um, you know, the Enlightenment was, see, be, was seen as being particularly materialistic and exploitative, right? You know, it was interested in like, like ideas like improvement are all about like, okay, how do you make nature produce more, that kind of thing, uh, in service of, of human needs. Um, so, so this is a kind of like roundabout way I got to this question of use, this idea of, you know, okay, um, what does it mean, you know, when we talk about human beings using nature um, and the kind of um, ethical questions around that, you know, like when is it okay to use, what kinds of use are okay? Because obviously like we have, you know, that we have to eat kind of means that there's going to be some level of use. Um, so, so this is what kind of brought me around to this, to, to wanting to reapproach these ideas. So like, okay, if, if one thing that, that 18th century texts, 18th century literature does is sort of put the issue of use at the center of this relationship between humans and their environments, then let's like really think a little bit more, you know, uh, deeply about about this question of use. And so that's how I kind of 
um, found this wonderful term, usufruct, um, and uh, how this project that eventually became the usufructuary ethos um, evolved. So that's where I got to where I am today. <laughs> I mean, that's such a good introduction to to what, you know, your background and also the, the book itself. And, and do you want to just kind of give us and give the, the audience a quick rundown about the, you know, the specifics of the book? Um, maybe sure. like uh, the, 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 the first or the main argument? Sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, one f fun thing I usually get to do when I when I talk about my project, of course, is um, teach everyone a new word, <laughs> um, which is usufruct. Most people uh, don't know the word, but it's a great word and it's really fun to say usufruct. Um, any word that has that fruct uh, uh, stem in it, I think is just really fun. So um, usufruct is um, it's. Uh, a legal term actually it comes from um, Roman property law. And so to have the legal right of usufruct to something means that um, sort of dictionary definition is the right of temporary possession, use or enjoyment of the advantages of property belonging to someone else um, so far as may be had without causing damage or prejudice. So the example I usually use would be um, let's say if you have uh, the usufruct of a cow, um, the cow itself, like the actual organism, the, the, the animal, the cow belongs to someone else. They own the cow. Um, I, if I have the usufruct, if I have a usufructuary uh, property in the cow, what that means is that I can milk the cow. I can... And the, the milk that I get from the cow is mine. I can drink it. I can make it into cheese and sell the cheese and keep the money that I get from the cheese. I can do whatever I want um, with the whatever the, the cow produces. But because the cow itself belongs to someone else, I have a responsibility to that um, outright owner to make sure that the cow remains healthy and, um, you know, intact so that if and when the, the property owner comes back and is like, I want my cow back, I'm able to return the cow and say, here it is exactly, you know, in the, in the condition that you gave it to me, like the cow is alive and healthy and still can produce milk and all that kind of stuff. So um, what does that have to do with, um, with uh, 18th century environmental thought? And, um, and literature. So the argument of the book um, is that there is, or there was um, a sort of thread of environmental thought, a way of conceptualizing the relationship among human beings, um, the non-human world, and um, God, you know, and, uh, the, the divine, um, that was, uh, both sort of structured according to the logic of usufruct and also was discussed in specifically, specifically in terms of usufruct. So, um, and that's what I call the usufructuary ethos. And the idea was that, human beings, rather than having dominion over the earth, um, 
had the usufruct of it. So God retains permanent ownership of everything that he made. Um, he gives human beings the usufruct of the earth, which means that we have the temporary right to use and benefit from it. We have the right to cultivate it and, you know, build houses and grow grain, whatever. Um, but that ultimately, because we are the usufructs and not the owners, human beings have a responsibility to care for and maintain that, the earth, right? We don't have the right because we don't own it. Human beings don't have the right to just do whatever we want. We don't have the right to destroy anything. We are responsible to God for sort of caring for and maintaining what he made. And then um, in, in sort of 17th and 18th century thought, um, the usufructuary position of the human being also meant that we had uh, uh, the, uh, the responsibility um, to take care of all the other creatures that, you know, that, that exist around us. So human beings in, in the usufructuary ethos and this sort of way of thinking, um, human beings are kind of at, in the middle of a couple of sort of chains. If you're an 18th century, you'll still be um, familiar with the concept of the chain of being. You may have heard of the chain of being, even if you're not an 18th centuryist. Um, and it is it sort of dovetails with the chain of being in a bunch of ways. So human beings are sort of in the middle of a couple of chains. We're in the middle of this chain of responsibility, um, sort of ownership, where we're like in between God and the earth. So we have sort of responsibilities to both. We have, and we're accountable to both. And then we're also sort of in the middle of this this um, chain of both time and resources. So we are responsible for um, sort of distributing resources to those around us. And we're also responsible for stewarding and passing along um, the resources we have from one generation to the next. So um, this manifested in, in, in a bunch of different ways. Um, and in the book, um, uh, the first, the first chapter of the book I talk, uh, is sort of mainly dedicated to the theological and philosophical and, um, legal origins of this. Um, usufruct is a term that was used a lot in, uh, in theological discussions. Um, you see this in, in a bunch of different, very prominent 17th century English, um, theologians like Richard Allistree, who wrote the whole duty of God. Um, legal authorities like Sir Matthew Hale, um, who's a, an important uh, sort of 17th century judge, but they all use this idea of usufruct to talk about um, the relationships among human beings um, and their environment and God. Um, and uh, and they're drawing on um, on moral philosophy, on natural law, and on um, on sort of like uh, legal language. Um, and they do like the, all these writers do specifically apply these ideas to um, the non-human world. So writers like Hale and Alice Tree do specifically use the, the idea of usufruct to enforce human responsibility to non-humans. You know, they sort of, to, to sort of argue that we are in a moral community 
um, with the rest of creation, which I think is something that's really, really interesting and something that's been, you know, that's one of those things that I think has been, was for a long time lost or sort of forgotten um, about early modern thinking about environment um, for, you know, for a a bunch of reasons, a lot of them very good reasons, um, in part because not everyone you know, who's, and not everyone who's writing theology at the time agrees um, that human beings have moral um, obligations to human beings. But there are a lot of prominent authors who who did believe that and who argued it. Um, so uh, the sort of last bit of this that I will talk about for now, and then I will pause <laughs> um, to, uh, to ask if, to let you ask another question or um, for clarifications. Um, but in the f- sort of final piece of this, that I, that of the usufructuary ethos that I think is really key to understanding it and also to thinking about the um, implications of it um, is that the this idea of human beings as usufructuaries of God um, was tied up with a bunch of other legal terms, some of which are more familiar to uh, those of us in environmental studies. So things like steward, um, you know, human beings, usufructuary and steward were also often used kind of interchangeably, Um, but also the term landlord. Um, And in fact, the figure of the landlord. So the, the, you know, the, the class of men who owned land in England um, when you look at uh, the the texts in which these ideas are being discussed, um, they are really strongly associated with uh, the figure of the landlord. Landlord is the person who sort of epitomizes this idea um, of God's usufructuary. Um, and so on the one hand, what I think, you know, in the book I sort of argue this tells us is that there was a really deep and abiding interest in an interrogation of the ethics of use and the ethics of power surrounding landlords. So like, you know, you have these figures, um, you know, in, in English society who have a great deal of control over the environment, over the earth and power, um, not only in terms of, of, the environment, but over other people. And there was, the use of structure ethos was one way to sort of talk about the boundaries and the limits and the ethics surrounding that, you know, possession and power. On the other hand, that also, uh, I think, points towards um, the fundamental hierarchism of the idea of usufruct. Um, you know, so the usufructuary ethos on the one hand, it is a, is a sort of set of ideas that put humans, you know, that, that, that says that human beings have a huge amount of environmental responsibility, both to non-human creatures and to fellow humans and to future generations. But there is only a particular set of people who have that power or should have that power. Um, and human beings are hierarchically above non-humans, right? This is not in any way (laughs) an egalitarian set of ideas. It's very, very hierarchical. And um, a lot of these similar ideas were used um, to, you know, to naturalize or to defend social hierarchy. Um, So, you know, all that is to say, like, I think one of the things that I'm interested in and, and that the book 
talks about um, is is both the sort of surprisingly conservationist um, uh, ethos that is a sort of set of usufructuary ideas, um, but without wanting to, um, you know, romanticize them or suggest or or to, uh, you know, I don't want to suggest like, and this is the solution to our environmental problems, right? There's, these are all tied up with a bunch of other um, sort of social ideas that are certainly not ones that we probably want to uh, <laughs> reintroduce. So I'll pause there. <laughs> oh my gosh, so much. I, I love it. Uh, one, thank you for your passion. Like this is so, this is so amazing because like I've never, you thread the line between those two things of conservation and and the social hierarchy so well, like recognizing both sides or you know, all of the dimensions of of this very complex subject. And then while also like recognizing that the the literature of environmental criticism and of, of environmental history um, hasn't had, had never really grappled with the with the 18th century um, in this way, where I think one at one point you you cite how essentially it jumps from the Renaissance to the the Romantics um, in in the 18th century, and um, and then it just kind of like skips over this period, or if it does, it like hits on hits on John Locke or something like that. Um, and 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 you and you also discuss that in in chapter one. I didn't know if you wanted to talk about the second treatise um, a little bit and how. Sure. Yeah, go please yeah, go yeah. ahead. I, I would I would like to clarify just you know uh, um you know the the sort of jumping from Renaissance to Romantics um, that is that was something that was true I think 10, 15 years ago um, that was definitely true but I would like to shout out my fellow 18th century uh, environmental studies scholars of which now there are many many and there is like unbelievable and groundbreaking work so I think that was true you know 15 years ago but thankfully it is not true now <laughs> yeah um, yeah and, and sorry i didn't mean to to misrepresent the field because no, you no, have no. a really good um line here that says the last decade has seen a flowering of scholarly interest examining the numerous and complicated ways the 18th century writers grappled with both directly and yes. imaginatively with their environment so so that th thank you for that that clarification because that is really important as well that that we are yes. making these really interesting strides and yes everything. yeah I, I did i i knew that you knew but i just wanted to make sure that all the listeners who may not be familiar with the field know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, for sure. Um, so John Locke, yeah. So um, uh, part of the the argument of the book, so there's sort of like one part of the argument of the book, which is sort of arguing for the existence of this thing that I call the usufructuary ethos, you know, and sort of explaining what it is and demonstrating the ways that it it sort of functions in, um, in both, uh, you know, like that is the theological philosophical text I talked about, but also, um, in poetry, the other sort of overarching argument of the book has to do with, um, basically like what happened to the, to the use of fracture ethos. So this, this kind of like the, the centrality of these ideas 
um, seems to fade by the end of the by the end of the 18th century into the 19th century. It doesn't disappear the idea of usufructive of human beings be being the usufructs of the earth. That's an idea that recurs, um, you know, pops back, but it doesn't seem to have the same sort of like in the 17th and 18th century. It's it seems to be a sort of a given. Um, and that sort of fades away. And so one argument that I make is basically that part of the reason why there is so much explicit discussion of these ideas in the late 17th uh, century and into the, the, you know, to the, to the sort of midpoint or two thirds of the way through the 18th century is because those ideas, this idea that human beings are, are usufructs and that all these sort of duties and responsibilities come with it. Um, are starting to be uh, challenged, um, not necessarily directly, but like sort of other forces and other ideas are kind of undermining um, the the cent- you know the, the sort of um, persuasiveness, um, I guess the the hegemony of that um, set of environmental assumptions, and so. Um, Kind of like unsurprisingly, <laughs> uh, the the converging vectors that really put pressure on usufructuary ideas, I think, are um, capitalism and colonialism. And um, so, in the first chapter, I talk about Locke's second treatise because I think both of these you can see in in the second treatise. Part of what is happening is Locke. Um, my argument is Locke is uh, sort of grappling with how to justify um, uh, certain kinds of uh, what we now call sort of liberal capitalist um, practices in light of these usufructuary moral starting points. Locke does start from the premise um, of human beings' usufructuary possession of the earth. Um, He does that because this is a sort of fundamental assumption of natural law, going all the way back to Thomas Aquinas. Um, So Thomas Aquinas, um, you know, one of his sort of like, one of his like sort of the main arguments for the existence of something called natural law, the idea that there can be sort of like universal laws um, is based in the fact that God has permanent ownership of everything that he creates. Um, This is what makes it, it's like this weird thing where they have to kind of get past this like biblical, uh, (laughs) this like this biblical sort of crux where it's like, okay, if, if, Stealing and murdering, stealing and killing are always wrong, just like self-evidently always wrong. Then why is it okay for God to kill people and to take stuff away from people in the Bible? And the answer is God can't murder and God can't steal because everything that exists is already his. Um, So if if he's taking something away from one person, he's taking back what's his. This is a kind of like this this sort of fundamental assumption of... um, of natural law. So Locke starts from this assumption, you know, he, he and everyone else who's writing about the nature of property um, and natural law in the 17th century, um, Grotius, Pufendorf, they all start from this assumption. Um, and you'll see references to this idea in the second treatise. Um, you know, Locke talks about uh, 
you know, the, the workmanship, God's workmanship belongs to God, right? Everything that was made uh, by God belongs to him ultimately. Um, this also helps give uh, sort of support to his argument in the second treatise that what you put your workmanship in makes it yours, right? As we all know, that's sort of like his fundamental argument about property. So what happens in the second treatise? Um, when he starts out, um, when he's talking about property, he says, whatever you put your work into, as soon as you mix your work with it, um, it becomes yours. So if you have a, you know, an apple tree that is growing apples, if you pick the apple off the tree, or if, you, if an apple falls on the ground and you pick it up, the act of plucking the apple is labor that is mixing with the apple and it makes the apple yours. So now that's how you, you come to have possession of the apple. So in the state of, uh, the state of nature in the sort of like beginning state, Locke says there are two provisos. There are two limitations on, um, on property. Um, and the two provisos are the waste proviso and the spoilage proviso. Um, and basically what the, what those say, the waste proviso says you have a right to everything and anything that you mix your labor with. Um, so long as, uh, there is enough and as good left over for someone else. So if there are 20 apples and you take all 20 of them, then you don't, the proviso says you don't have the right to all 20 apples because if there's one other person and you've got 20 and they've got zero, you haven't left enough and as good for them. Right. So you have, you can take 10, um, and that leaves 10 for them. And then you haven't violated the, the waste proviso. The spoilage proviso says kind of a similar thing. You can take as much as you can use basically. So if you take, if you take 20 apples and there's no one else, you know, and there's, a, there's as many left on the tree for someone else. Um, that's fine. But if you don't use or eat all 20 of them, uh, if you eat five and the other 15 spoil, then that's a violation because you took something someone else could have used. The, the apples spoiled, but if you had left them there or you'd given them to someone else, they could have eaten those apples. So, um, so that's all well and good, right? Like that seems to be a sort of like ethical limitation on on essentially human greed, right? Like you can, you can see where like, this is all very sort of libertarian idea. Like you, you have the right to what you can take as long as you taking it doesn't hurt anyone else or their equal right to whatever it is, right? It's all about the individual. It's about individuals, innate, personal individual rights and protecting those. Um, so what happens in the second treatise uh, is that he finds two ways to get around these provisos and basically to get out of the ethical limitations that, that, that these ideas kind of rooted in this in, in uh, usufructuary ownership would impose. So for the spoilage proviso, that, that um, loophole is money um, because money doesn't spoil. An apple spoils, but gold doesn't spoil. So you can accumulate as much gold as you want, 
as much money as you want um, because that money will never go bad, right? Um, so now if you know if you if you pick 50 apples and you sell them to other people, then you know you have the right to all that money um, because the apples aren't going to spoil. The loophole for the waste proviso, which is the one that says you can you have a right to whatever you can mix your labor with um, as long as you leave as much and as good for everyone else. Um, so that was more directly, that one is the, is the one that would seemingly on the surface seem to um, mitigate against private property, right? If one person owns, you know, all of the land in one county, then there isn't as much and as good land left over for everyone, for anyone else to own, right? Um, the way that he got around that one was colonialism and particularly this idea of America. So he has to sort of construct this, this sort of semi-fictional America which is a place where there is endless supplies of land. There's plenty of land for anyone to go own. So as long as there is as much as much and as good land available in the colonial space called America, that theoretically, uh, you know, a non-landowning person in England could go own, well, then you don't have a problem with the, the waste proviso. What, of course, that also means is that he has to figure out a way for the people who already lived in America <laughs> to be living there and not own what they are living on. Um, and the way that he gets around that is by arguing that indigenous people didn't quote unquote, improve the land. They didn't sufficiently mix their labor with it. And therefore they don't actually own it. They're just kind of there. So it's still available for ownership. Um, so the this sort of kind of becomes like kind of a bellwether for um, these user structure ideas in a couple of ways. I think um, because it kind of like sets, uh, well, there's, there's like a couple of directions that this goes. Um, one of the directions that it goes is towards what we now call classical liberalism. Um, and sort of one way that these ideas evolve over the course of the century is you get, um, a sort of thread of argument about usufructuary ownership that, um, sort of sheds this idea of moral community with the, you know, human and non-human worlds around you and really focuses on the individual rights of the individual person. Um, and you see this sort of um, pop up in uh, people like Thomas Jefferson. So Thomas Jefferson, in one of his letters um, to Madison, he quotes this line, the, the earth belongs in the use of to the living. Um, but interestingly, that letter is not about, it has nothing to do with the environment. He's talking about debt and he's talking about why passing debt generationally um, is, is a violation of, of man's rights, basically. And that's sort of like based on this, like, I as an individual, you know, like it sort of infringes upon my individual 
right? So this sort of the most important thing is the individual here and that their individual rights are not infringed, um, which is different from the kind of like theological uh, version of the, uh, of the ideas of usufruct, which, like I said, really focused on the kind of relationships among um, organisms and generations. Um, the other sort of like piece of lock, I think that kind of, you know, that, that I sort of trace through the book, um, is a little bit, it's, it's less directly about lock. It's less directly about like people picking up sort of ideas from second treatise and, and, um, developing them and more about looking at the ways, the sort of other versions of the kind of thing Locke did where, um, you, you, I'm interested in the ways that sort of writers were unwilling or maybe sort of intellectually or, or in some way unable to let go of the sort of core ethical philosophical premises of usufruct and the usufructuary ethos, but are still looking for ways to adapt those ideas to justify things that would otherwise seem to be unjustifiable. Um, so one place in specific um, where I talk about that at length is in chapter four, which is looking at um, uh, John Dyer's The Fleece, which is a Georgic poem about um, the woolen trade um, from 1757 and James Granger's The Sugarcane, which is all, uh, another uh, Georgic poem. And that one is about um, sugar plantations in um, the Caribbean. And so what I'm interested in there is where the, the way these two men are sort of adapting the Georgic, which is a, a, a literary sort of poetic genre, which is very much bound up with um, these usufructuary ideas and these kind of usufructuary assumptions, but trying to adapt them, sort of move them from, um, from the sort of socio-environmental context they had been, they had carried in the, in the earlier century and in the 17th century and adapt them to describe things like, you know, enclosure and the workhouse and, um, uh, you know, sugar monocultures worked by enslaved people. Um, so I think there's an interesting sort of dynamic that I'm really, in, that I, that I found myself fascinated by that it really comes down to the ways that we as human beings um, kind of try to resolve our cognitive dissonance, try to convince ourselves things are the staying the same when they're really changing. And I think there's, there's some pretty direct parallels to, you know, current, uh, things like, you know, corporate greenwashing, um, where in, when I say corporate greenwashing, I, you know, I don't even mean that necessarily in like a deeply cynical sense. You know, I think there's a lot of cases where, um, you know, you have people within sort of, um, like corporate structures that are really interested in, uh, being environmentally responsible, but 
are unwilling and unable to do that at the expense of the demands of profit, you know? And so the solution is how can we sort of, how can we sort of make something into a kind of better version of a thing that already exists when the actual solution is to not have that particular kind of thing exist anymore. (laughs) If that makes sense. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. No, that makes total sense. And and I really like in the fourth chapter how you how how you you say that both uh Dyer and uh Grangers aren't like doing this on purpose or they're they're not attacking it, but like they're they're incrementally in, incrementally and like even unintentionally transforming these, yes. these sensibilities. Yes. Yeah, I think it's really important. The the thing about like Granger and Dyer, I think Granger in particular um for me that that feels most instructive is the way that i think he was completely sincere um and really believed in the sort of analogies that he was making um and you know i think looking at the sort of literary history of those two poems um, the fleece was definitely the more successful of the two. Um, and I think, you know, looking at how persuasive some of the, the sorts of moves that those poems make, um, is really instructive. So like, for instance, one thing I talk about with Dyer, um, so in, in the, the, I think second chapter of the book, uh, not counting the introduction, um, I have a chapter about um, trees. Um, And in that chapter, I talk about John Evelyn and um, uh, Anne Finch. And then another Georgic um, about apples and cider um, by John Phillips. And one thing I talk about in that chapter is the way that um, in these texts, all of which are, you know, late 17th century or in the first sort of decade of the 18th century, Um, trees sort of function um, not only as a resource, um, but also as these sort of nodes of connection and cohesion um, for communities and across time. So, you know, trees are often talked about in sort of generational terms. There's a sort of imagination of a tree is an organism that um, you know, that will be alive when you're gone, right? So a tree that you plant now, you may have your, your grandchild or your great grandchild will sit under that tree. So trees as organisms by the sort of like the, the thing, one thing that makes you trees unique is this long lifespan that, that exceeds the human lifespan. And so that sort of aspect of their, um, of their, nature kind of creates an intergenerational cohesion. Um, But they're also very important because they offer a sort of 
set of communal benefits. So um, there's a bunch of places in various texts where trees are talked about in terms of um, providing sort of public benefits, like they provide shade to the people who live in that area or to anyone who happens to be walking um, across that property. So if you plant them along a road, you know, everyone who uses that road will enjoy that shade. Or if they're in your fields, anyone who's walking across your, your property will enjoy that shade. Um, there's um, sort of exhortations to plant certain kinds of trees like walnuts because walnut trees also provide food, right? So walnuts, you know, like they, they grow, they provide shade, but they also will drop walnuts on the ground and anyone can sort of pick up those walnuts and, and use them as sustenance. So um, sort of developing this way in which, you know, in the sort of 17th century, early 18th century, you have these living organisms, trees that by their sort of the unique things that make them trees serve to um, sort of embody and reinforce this thing that I call a socio-environmental community. And, and the landlord, of course, is like the person who's in charge of making, you know, sort of overseeing this and making sure that it all remains intact and stewarding it for everyone involved. Well, when you get to um, Dyer's Fleece, I think one really interesting thing that happens in Dyer's Fleece is that he relocates the that source of cohesion, the thing that kind of like connects people across time and space and and gives them some sort of like um, some sort of social cohesion. He moves that from the landscape, like from the actual, you know, non-human world from trees into first the workhouse and then eventually to the kind of concept of trade. And the the first one, the workhouse, he kind of does because he has to, right? Like he has to deal with the fact that like the the growth of the the woolen trade in England, like the thing that was driving that was a enclosure. So kicking people, you know, you have people who used to live on this land and, you know, support themselves in part by um, growing food on it. You know, all these people who be walking around enjoying that shade and eating those walnuts, you know, they're being kicked off of that land in order to raise more sheep. And then what happened to them when they were kicked off that land is that they would wind up working in a factory potentially that was producing the thread and the cloth that was made from those sheep. So he kind of does this like little sleight of hand sort of thing where he's like, well, actually the workhouse is good. And, you know, people kind of living on their own is bad because, you know, if you're living in the way that we used to live, then you have the commons and the commons are bad because everyone's just, it's just sort of chaos and people aren't really taking care of each other and it's all just kind of goes to waste. But when you're in the workhouse, everyone is working together in harmony. Like human beings are exactly like the machines that they're working on. They're all kind of, you know, he has this very like romanticized version of the workhouse. And then eventually he kind of extends that and he says, and then trade is this like global trade is this wonderful thing because, because of trade, you know, that person in the workhouse is connected to all the other people across the globe who are going to receive that, cloth. And then they're connected back again when the goods that we get from trading the cloth come back to England. So he does this thing where he takes something that had been, you know, saying like, 
our sort of community is based in this place and is based in taking care of all the things that live in this place, human and non-human. And then eventually it becomes the thing that kind of keeps us all together and happy and well um, is international trade (laughs) Um, and the labor practices that go with it. Um, And again, I think it's, you know, I, I don't think that like, you know, Dyer wasn't like, cackling and twirling his mustache, you know, like, ha ha ha, I've pulled one over on someone. I think he was genuinely sort of looking, working through these ideas and going like, you know what, like this thing is kind of like that thing, you know, is this a sort of, there's a, there's a logic to what he does. And this idea that trade was a force of, of cohesion, that trade was something that sort of forged connections among people that wasn't unique to Nair. There's a lot of other writers who use that exact kind of metaphor with trade, um, which shows like, again, it was, it was very, that, that idea about how trade worked was very persuasive. And I think part of the reason it was persuasive is because it was built on this logic that already existed. And so I'm just kind of interested in the way that like the sort of slide from one to the other that happened that we can now with, with historical distance, we can look at that and be like, oh, wow, look at that. That's really weird. You know, and I'm, I'm sort of curious about what are the things where that's happening now that because we're in it, it's harder to see. I I appreciate that so much. And the way that you are taking all of these threads and looking at it through through literature and being able to to um, show these slides are, are amazing because this is also like a, a, a civilization kind of like looking at the this thinking of the Scottish Enlightenment and the stages from you know from the commons and and um hunter-gatherer to the the peak civilization of, of commerce and trade like these are these are the the same logics working but in just in a different way that that is just so so like I, as you said earlier kind of like it's it's like changing the the hegemony right of- absolutely yes I, I'm so glad you brought up the sort of stadial history because I think that that is like a huge part of this too yeah yeah and and I mean and this is this is I, I I'm loving this so much because it, it parallels my my work so um so perfectly as well in terms of just how how knowledge and our perception of of the world um manifests and changes without us necessarily even knowing or it changes as we kind of react to these different these different anxieties that that come out of of our contemporary times as more of a reactionary thing than 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 a than a planned thing and i I wondered uh, especially in the in chapter two and then i think you get even more into it in chapter three you 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 also talk about kind of environmental degradation and and environmental like decay um do you want do you want to talk about kind of the anxieties around people watching the uh the infrastructure or sorry the 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 infrastructure um just kind of like erode in in this in this moment yeah. Um, so the, I think that that's like so fascinating too, I think for this period and, and chapter three um, is, um, is my chapter about Alexander Pope. Um, so, you know, so that chapter is very much about, it's, it's sort of about these anxieties, like about the sort of tensions rising around these questions of, ethics of use and possession, 
um, uh, the problem of of the sort of use of what in the 18th century they called the use of riches, um, uh, and um, but the chapter is also specifically like that. That third chapter is is sort of all around Alexander Pope. And one thing that's like I think really interesting, and that part of the reason why you sort of wound up having that chapter kind of around Pope is that um, in England of the 18th century, um, a lot of those anxieties were also bound up with um, sort of. First of all, anxieties about um, what were at the time sort of new financial instruments. So there's like a there's like a huge amount of anxiety in, in the sort of first half of the 18th century around um, what was called paper credit and the emergence of of kind of what we now call the stock exchange. Um, and there's like a bunch of famous bubbles, you know, like this is it's 1720 was the South Seas bubble. Uh, so obviously, of course, this is all mixed up with you can't you can't escape colonialism, of course. It's like it's all it's all right there. Uh, it's all intertwined. Um, but but the interesting thing with that, in you know, and especially in context of Pope, was that in England, all of that was like super, super politicized. Right. Like whether you thought that um, the sort of development of new financial instruments and markets um, was a good thing or a bad thing often had more to do with your political commitments than to do necessarily with, you know, your like totally objective assessment of the actual issues. (laughs) Um, As is still true now, of course. Um, and, uh, you know, in particular, kind of like very, 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 very crudely um, in England, things were sort of split between the Tories who were, you know, like the country party. This is the party of the landowning class. So people who whose money and power was a, sort of accrued um, and held on to through ownership of land ancestrally in England, right? Versus um, sort of roughly, again, very crudely, um, the Whigs who were associated with the kind of new economy. So um, money generated not by good old fashioned owning some land and renting it to farmers or cutting down trees or whatever, you know, growing trees or whatever, but um, on things like speculation on um, on mercantile colonies or on, um, you know, uh, uh, currency exchanges or um, that kind of thing. So the paper credit, the sort of what was seen as sort of ephemeral, the way it was couched, it was sort of this like the the real and the permanent and the ancestral, which was land versus the ephemeral. Um, and so... So Pope is this really interesting case where he's, you know, he's very partisan <laughs> um, on the side of the Tories. Um, but what he's really very, very, very anxious and concerned about um, is, you know, who has money and power 
and what they do with it. And he's not just worried about, you know, like he sort of just blanket disapproves of, of paper credit of the sort of ephemeral world of money making money. But he's also really, really, really worried about um, the other side too. You know, this problem of like, it's all, you know, okay. So like being a landowner is good, but there's all kinds of ways that can go wrong. So he sort of like engages throughout his works um, very famously with the sort of like push pull between the problem of, um, of prodigality of like wasting what you have and the problem of avarice. So on the one hand, you could, you know, get greedy and spend too much and lose everything you have. On the other hand, you could keep too much to yourself, in which case you are not fulfilling your duty as the usufruct of God, right? Like you have a job, like the reason that you, the landlord, get all these special, amazing gifts, why you're so, you're in the position that you are, is that you're supposed to be the conduit through which all this good stuff is passed through to everyone else. And, and so like as the conduit, you can either, you can either spew out too much or you can hold back too much. And, um, so, so yeah, so I think through Pope, you know, I think one thing that kind of becomes clear is, um, the lengths to which he has to go to kind of try to argue for and reinforce the right you know, there's, there's, there is an ethical way to be a person who has great riches and great power. Um, and, uh, you know, and if you are like the best possible version of the world is that someone who observes those sort of ethical rules is in that position, um, versus the problem where, there are too many people in the world who have money and power and they aren't using it right. And of course, you know, like the interesting thing about Pope and so many of these writers is that they never can bring themselves to go to the point of maybe one person having that much money and power isn't a good thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> like that's just never, you know, he's never going to go there. Uh, so uh, yeah, so so that's that's kind of, this is where I think this is where for me, you can see, I think in a, in a particularly clear and interesting way in 18th century literature, the ways that the political and the environmental are so completely interlocked, the ways that people thought about how you use the, you know, what it means to possess and to use and to steward um, the natural world and the, the the responsibilities you had to that were inextricable from um, the sort of social and political responsibilities you had. And I think that, and that's one of the things that I, that, you know, one of the things that I hope that I tried to do with the book that I hope to do with the book was to sort of make a case for the, uh, the use of fractory ethos as being a form of environmental thought that is really sort of fundamentally bound up with um, uh, sort of politics, um, you know, in a way that I think, again, to kind of go back to uh, sort of like the history of eco-criticism, um, 
in various ways, um, politics and, and environment have often sort of been treated as separate. Um, so this is one way where I was sort of trying to think about like, okay, how do, how do these two um, sort of ways of thinking, these two sort of expressions of thought about how to be in the world um, sort of uh, connect to one another? Yeah, yeah. And that that's, I, I think that comes through, like throughout the, okay, the whole book. And, and, and the fact that you're using literature as well is amazing, because then it also brings in this like, cultural aspect where it's like, mm-hmm. we, we can look at these pieces of, of art that actually have real life significance. And I would also wonder if, if you would think that economy is in the is in the same realm, because like, as you said, yeah, like, for sure. Absolutely. Money, making money is like a ephemeral world. And then in the second chapter, you, you talk about how um, I think John Evelyn in, in particular is, and, and even, even Anne Finch's poetry is um, reexamining the, the political ideology to try and balance the, the degradation of landscapes, the, the loss of trees, along with the, the, the desires of short-term agricultural profit. So is it fair mm-hmm. to say that like even economy is built into this like ecosystem? Oh, absolutely. I think, again, yeah, uh, totally inextricably. Because like you said, you know, so Evelyn, um, John Evelyn, uh, the thing he's most famous for writing probably is this book called Silva, which is a sort of this massive treatise about um, the sort of the species of trees in England, but also sort of a survey of the state of the forests and of the of the timber reserves in, in England in the 1660s. And um, it had been commissioned by the Royal Navy, you know, kind of the, the, the most famous part of the story, um, because, of course, this is, you know, England is an island nation. They are in the in the business of uh, colonizing. They need a lot of ships. They need to maintain a large navy and they need a lot of, of trade ships. And, of course, in the 17th century, they're all made of wood um, and you need very particular kinds of wood. And you need, you know, like you have to have a lot of masks. Right. And that requires particular kinds of wood. And so there was a lot of worry about, like, are, are we going to have enough wood? And then also, of course, like using it for fuel, et cetera. But there's another piece, you know, a big piece of what Evelyn was writing about that you um, mentioned, which is the other sort of one of the big threats to the timber, the amount of trees that were on the land in England was in the 17th century. Um, if you wanted to generate the most profit from your land, um, in the shortest amount of time, the thing to do was to grow grain. Um, that's because at the time, uh, most of England's colonies um, in North America and the Caribbean did not grow enough food to support themselves. So interestingly, at the time, um, most food in um, the Americas was uh, imported um, because they were more interested in growing cash crops. So you have this, this sort of like dynamic where you have the colonial spaces, you have people who are engaged in agriculture, but mostly or, or sort of primarily in a lot of places in cash crop monoculture. You know, you're there to grow sugar or tobacco or cotton um, to to sell it. So you're not growing food. So then somebody's got to grow the food. So then in England, they're going to grow the food. 
But that means, you know, if you are growing wheat for food, um, because the, the return on investment in that comes in one season, you're not planting trees, which don't return on your investment for 30 years or 50 years. Um, so Evelyn is kind of making this, trying to make this case for you have to think, you know, the pro- part of the problem is people are thinking in terms of getting cash now. And we got to fight back against that and try to remind them of these sort of like longer term generational um, uh, needs and um, and responsibilities. Um, and part of the way that he does that is is through this sort of practical thing of like, you know, we're going to need trees in 30 years. But part of the way that he does it is by talking about trees in terms of like I was mentioning before, in terms of the ways that their long lifespans um, sort of connect people through time, you know, they sort of create communities and environments. Um, he, he sort of retells the story from the Odyssey of, um, uh, Ulysses returning from his finally getting home, you know, after 20 years and, uh, he's in disguise and he sees his father, who's like very old at that point, planting a tree. And he asks him, old man, why are you planting that tree? And Ulysses' father says, I'm planting it for my son. And he says, well, why are you, you know, like, you're not going to live to see this tree mature. Um, so why are you doing that? And he says, well, I'm doing it so my son will have it. So it's this kind of like, you know, there's this like very kind of emotional moral appeal. Um, so, yeah. So going all the way back to that, it's like absolutely, you know, tied up in like sort of micro and macro economies. Um, and then by the time you get to things like Dyer and Granger, of course, like those are Georgic poems. They're poems about agriculture. They're poems about how to, what to do with your land and, um, how to like learn about, you know, the environment you're in and how best to use it and all these very Georgic things. But the context is, you know, cash crop monoculture, (laughs) um, you're, you're, using the land to raise one thing, and that is sheep or sugar. And the thing that you're going to get from raising, you know, growing that sugar is not sustenance, is not, you know, fending off starvation, but cash. Um, So yeah, I think environment, economy, politics, they're all, they're all just like one big uh, tangled web. Yeah, and and the other thing that kind of comes out of this period, and and something that I've been thinking about a lot, is the bifurcation of kind of nature and humans, right? And it almost it almost seems like, and I want to. This is a little bit of a tangent, but kind of I don't know. It like based on all of what what you what you just what you've said throughout throughout this uh, throughout throughout this interview. Um, in terms of the, the, there's there there almost seems to be like an alienation of of understanding not just the tree, but the concept behind the tree, which kind of takes us out of, or takes the human in, in 18th century Britain out of kind of a cyclical organic mindset of, of intergenerational and, and really places them in a linear, quick pace, materialistic, artificially materialistic, I guess, um, mindset where it's like, we need to, to make money to, to make money to make money and and, and there's no, they're not thinking about like the the long term is it like so is it fair to say that like I mean like this is this is a reason for the just the way that these this this culture nature break happens. 
I think it's it's definitely a piece of that story for sure. And I think, you know, for me, I think that's one of the really important distinctions um, between, you know, what I was talking about before in terms of like the, the sort of branches of, of usufructuary ideas from the the sort of version that came out of 17th century um, theological writers, which was really, again, which was all about emphasizing the um, sort of interconnection among um, all beings, you know, like human beings, non-human beings, God, individuals, the collective, et cetera. Um, And then the sort of more like liberal version that came later and I think evolved out of people like Locke, um, where the responsibility shifts from, you know, you are a node in a network, right? Um, uh, there's, there's like these amazing metaphors in some of these, um, theological writers where they'll, they'll say things like there's this one sermon from, I think like the 1620s. Um, where the writer he sort of goes on this long extended metaphor where he he says things like, you know, just as the sun gives the gifts of its light to, uh, you know, to all of the the plants growing on earth, and the plants give their gift of, you know, sustenance to the cow, and the cow gives their gift of milk to you so do you, the human being, have this requirement to pass along your gifts um, to everyone else. So there's this kind of conceptualization of the universe where it's just a sort of like interconnected, you know, like you're, you're getting and giving all the time. You know, that's just, you're just sort of through you passes your particular kind of gift to the universe. Um, and again, and then through time. So it's like, and, and also you are, you are a conduit through which past becomes future, you know, um, versus the sort of liberal instantiation, which says your usufructuary duty is to, is more negative, right? Rather than, rather than having a sort of positive duty to pass along a gift, you have a negative duty to not infringe on someone else's um, freedoms. So rather than thinking about, you know, this, this property, this, this piece of land um, exists now when I'm here and when I'm gone, it will still exist and it will be passed on to the next generation. And so I'm going to build things on it that will benefit them, right? You know, that is sort of imagination of a tree as something that will be, is here now and will be here in the future and sort of connects us through time. There's a sense of, I have this thing now and it will be passed on to the next person. So my job is to sort of leave it as a blank slate so that when it's theirs, there's nothing impeding them from um, from doing what they need or want to do with it. And so I think part of the kind of bifurcation has to do with that shift. Um, there is a, uh, sort of in, in moral philosophy, um, among, among moral philosophers, um, there's a, a very, uh, I think pretty prominent one, 
um, I think it was, uh, I'm afraid I'm going to get this wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure um, it was Stephen Buckle um, who, uh, who writes about moral philosophy. And he sort of describes this as a shift from um, conceiving of the sort of, of morals um, in terms of duties to thinking in terms of rights. So, you know, previously used to think about sort of like every person had a set of duties, which is outward focused, right? You have a duty to someone else. And then it became focused on each individual person's rights. So I think that is a piece of it. Um, you know, another piece of that is that, again, all of that focuses very much on human beings, right? Like if you're thinking about like, I want to pass on this property without any impediments to the person who is um, inheriting it, um, that's really like a, a very exclusively human to human transaction, you know, um, you sort of lose that sense of moral community with other uh, non-human organisms. Um, so I think that's another piece of it is, is that sort of the idea that moral obligation is, is really solely human to human, I think kind of, um, wins out. Um, so I think that's another piece of it. Yeah. This is, I mean, my mind is just like blown here. It's so, um, like the, I just being able to look at it in this perspective is, is really, really interesting. And, and, um, I, I mean, it's just really cool that you're able to, to build, um, all of these, these thoughts out of, out of literature in particular. And I, before we really wrap up, I guess like one, one procedural question that I, that I would have, like in terms of how you, how you came about to, to write this book. And this is for maybe a lot of like grad students out there that, mm -hmm. that might be listening. This is like, how did you, how did you decide on which sources you were going to, to use? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, so uh, the, when I was like doing, so this started as my dissertation um, before it became my book. And the dissertation is very, very, very different from the book. Um, but a big part of that research was just kind of trying to trace the, the term and the idea of usufruct um, down as many rabbit holes as I could find. Um, <laughs> so um, I, I did a lot of uh, research through um, the 18th century collections online database and early English books online. Um, and, you know, and I started out, like when I was starting my dissertation research, a lot of it was just to sort of see like, where does this, where does this word come up? And so from there, you know, part of what happened was I started to see a lot of, um, uh, patterns, you know, so there's the sort of pattern emerged in terms of this word coming up in these discussions sort of happening in theological texts. So part of the reason that I wound up writing about theological, the, a lot, you know, devoting a lot of, of time and space to the theological text is because that is where I discovered, um, you know, a lot of those, um, conversations happening. Um, and then, uh, the, of course, like I said, uh, usufruct is originally, it's a term that comes from, um, Roman law. Um, so I spent a lot of time researching, um, English, uh, legal history, 
um, which I can tell you is extremely confusing. <laughs> uh, one thing I learned about English history, particularly English, or English legal history, is don't expect it to make a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> even the English legal historians, like if you look at like what they write about the 18th century and 17th century in particular, particular they're just like, oh my God, this is a mess. Uh, <laughs> um, that A lot of that it didn't make it into the book actually because... Uh, because it wound up sort of, I kept trying to make it not feel like a huge, long tangent. And it just kind of kept turning into a huge, long tangent. So a lot of that stuff wound up being left out of the book, uh, you know, which is sort of funny because I've, I've gotten a couple of, you know, like reader responses at various points saying like, there should have been more, you know, stuff about legal history. And I was like, well, you say that now. <laughs> <laughs> but when it was there, everyone told me to take it out, um, which oh, as a grad no. student, probably good to know that that is a thing that happens a lot. Um, so I don't I don't know if that answers your question. But um, yeah, for me, it was a lot of, you know, sort of following the terms and ideas through the places that I found them. Um, I think I, th I did a lot of work uh, reading in moral philosophy and in natural law, because again, kind of doing the sort of um, uh, legal history background. Uh, one of the things that makes English law so confusing is that there's like all these different legal strands. There's common law, which is not the same as civil law, but both of them are operational. And then there's natural law, which is not either of them, but also kind of, you know, so like, so I spent a lot of time trying to sort of like trace things through and then try to figure out how to disentangle them again. Did that answer your question? Perfectly. And uh, okay. thank you so much for sharing this because it's, it's always it's always interesting to, to see how people and uh, scholars and, and, and academics arrive at, at, at the place where they, they do when usually it's it's not necessarily the place they, they started out at or yeah. you know, all of the twists and turns that, that come in. So I appreciate oh, for you sure. sharing that, especially the part about the law where you know, in, in, in some graduate seminar, I'm sure somebody's like, well, I know three laws that she should have, you know, cited <laughs> here I mean, like, I probably have 60 pages about it just <laughs> sitting there. <laughs> and that person would have probably not read it because it wouldn't have been compelling, right? Oh, it is extremely boring. <laughs> but if you want to know, if anybody wants to know, wants to talk to me about legal history, we can talk about it. We but it is very boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, Aaron, thank you so much for for uh, agreeing to do the interview. This has been so amazing, and and we've taken up so much of your time. Um, I just have one last question before we go, and 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 it's kind of our traditional question at MBN. What are you up to next? Well, so one of the things it's funny that you mentioned, you know, like learning about the kind of the ways that the places that research takes you that you don't expect. I didn't set out to write a book that was, you know, like all about landowning men <laughs> um, <laughs> and what they thought about uh, property and the ethics thereof. Um, but that's where I wound up because that's where the sort of questions that I was asking took me. And, I, and you know, I'm, I have no regrets, but um I am, you know, uh, I, I think my next project I'm thinking about, I haven't sort of totally settled on it, but I'm really interested in thinking about um, uh, particularly 
um, you know, some of some of the ramifications of these ideas and these um, assumptions for people who were not landowning men, right? You know, if we have something called the usufructuary ethos, but it's very strongly identified with a certain kind of person, you know, a person who could own property in England at that time, and, you know, it sort of raises a question, what, what did these ideas mean or how did they shape um, the environmental thinking of people who did not have the opportunity to be landowning men for class or gender or other reasons. Um, so that sort of broadly is, is what I'm interested in. Um, I'm also interested in um, uh, query ecology, um, which is, you know, sort of like a new uh, and emerging um field. So, so yeah, so I'm, I'm working on a project, a little like article project right now about on query ecology and the working class poet, Mary Leeper. So that's kind of in the short term, what I'm doing. Both of those sound amazing. I'm so excited to, um, to read anything you, you produce from, from your research. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for having me on the podcast. I have to say, you know, the greatest, the, the absolute best outcome that could have ever come from writing this book was that it was helpful and interesting to someone. And so it really means a lot to me to know that you enjoyed the book and that you found it compelling and, and helpful and all those things that just really, you know, that makes it all worthwhile. So thank you so much. Hey, and, and thank you for writing it. This is once again, it's, it's, it's been an amazing experience and, and thank you for being on the show. Yeah, my pleasure.